Amen. Thank you, Elena. And good morning and good to see all of you here this morning. Uh, enjoyed singing what we just sang, Precious Lord, Take My Hand. And it was written by the uh, father of gospel music, not too far from here. After he was mourning the loss of some life in his own family. Um, and there's a, a sense in the song of the heartbeat of sadness that rings through that I think uh, many of us have felt this week and have felt really for the last 54 weeks or so since we have been enduring this pandemic. I, uh, I see a few of our medical workers here this morning and I just wanna say thank you to you for uh, the work that you've done over the last 50, the last year or so, and the way that you've cared for people on the front lines. You know, the medical profession is a weird profession in some ways. I speak with absolutely no experience, and all I mean is this, is that uh, medical professionals have to learn sometimes by drinking by a fire hose. <laughs> in other words, they are immersed in facts and details in information which they have to codify and organize and then make, uh, make into something known, which is good, I suppose, because who wants a surgeon who doesn't really have their facts and their details memorized, right? There's probably two ways that you can learn in this world. One is by drinking from a fire hose and the other is by drinking from a faucet. The fire hose, everything comes at you very, very quickly. And the fountain is like a little sip of refreshment. And in, in reality, we sort of need both of those ways of learning. And I say that in part to thank our medical professionals, but also because the sermon text that I'm about to read is going to feel like you're drinking from a fire hose. Uh, because the Apostle Paul preaches a sermon in Acts chapter 13 where the information, the first time you receive it, feels like it is just pouring over you in an unrelenting way. And so I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 13, and we're going to read all the way to chapter 13 and verse 52. And you'll, you'll have the sense that uh, this is more information than you can process, so I'm going to try to make it very simple for you. And as we get started on the text, uh, let me put it in context and just mention that what, what's happening is the, that Paul and Barnabas are on a journey, the first of three missionary journeys, all of which emanate from the prayer meeting that we saw a number of weeks ago in Acts 13, 1-3. And you can think of it this way, that there's two kinds of energy in the world. There's potential energy like a ball at the top of the hill. And there's kinetic energy when the ball rolls down the hill. Or a skier at the top of the hill is propelled forward simply by gravity and moves forward. And it's, there's a sense with this passage that the prayer meeting is the gathering of potential energy. And when Paul comes out preaching in the synagogue in this passage, it's like a hurricane that has been unleashed because he has been in the presence of God. 
So hear the word of the Lord from Acts 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions, that included Barnabas, set sail from Paphos, which is uh, on, on the island of Cyprus, and came to Perga in Pamphylia, which is at the southern tip of uh, Asia Minor. And John left them, that's Acts chapter 15, verse 58, we find out more about that, and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. This is like letting a caged lion out of the cage. <laughs> the Apostle Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he had testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse... A man after my own heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and of those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of, his, of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God had promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten, for today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he spoke in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, 
Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your day, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was not necessary, sorry, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the, Lord, the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city who stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. As I said, a fire hose. <laughs> Most of us have an attention span that's about 90 seconds long. So I know I lost some of you in the first 10 verses of that text. But as I said, I will try to keep it very, very simple. Uh, Paul basically does three things here in his sermon. He tells the story of Israel, which is verses 16 to 25. Pretty simple. Then he tells the story of Jesus, which is verses 26 to 37. So he tells two stories, one of Israel, verses 26, sorry, 16 to 25, and then one of Jesus. And then he shows how those two stories come together to tell the story of freedom and forgiveness of sins. And so what I want to show you today is what Paul is answering is really a question about how could a Jewish audience in this day know that there is a Savior? That's basically what he wants to prove, which is what is in verse 23, is that there is a Savior that has come into the world I'll just read that verse. Of this man's offspring, that is David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So it's that Savior that I want to proclaim to you through the story of Israel, through the story of Jesus, and then the story of forgiveness. Will you bow with me and pray? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which at times seems complex, and yet when you show us the way is quite simple, and we ask, Lord, that you would... Show us who Jesus is from this text today that we might live in light of who he is. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
The text begins in verse 13, and just put it, to put it in context, Paul and Barnabas had been on Cyprus, which is uh, Barnabas's hometown, and then they set sail from Paphos on the island of Cyprus and went to Pamphylia, which is on the southern coast of Asia Minor. And it says then that John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John Stott says that Luke states this quite matter-of-factly, but we learn later in Acts chapter 15 that Paul is not happy with John Mark that he left. In fact, says that John Mark abandoned their mission at that point, which is why my parents, I guess, named me John Mark. That is actually my name. So he has a little bit of a, a sordid history. They went from Perga and then came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, for most of us, hearing all these geographical names is a little confusing, so I'll just point out that there are two Antiochs in Acts 13. One is called Antioch by the Orontes, and it's about 170 miles east of Cyprus, and the other one is called Antioch Pisidia, which is the one they're in now. So they start the mission in verses 1 to 3 in one Antioch, go to Cyprus, Paphos, and then they go up to another Antioch, and that's where they are. And then it says on the Sabbath day, they went in the synagogue and sat down. This is Paul's first sermon after being commissioned in Acts chapter 13. It says, after reading from the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. It's a little humorous. This guy's a visitor at church. It'd be like me saying, Joseph, can you come back up now if you have anything encouraging? He's not giving me any eye contact so that I can't call him. Just teasing, brother, this has happened to me in East Africa and it's happened to me in Cuba. I was sitting in Cuba one time in Havana and I, was, I realized about 15 minutes into the message or into the service that I was going to have the chance to preach. So I'm looking for some scripture verse from the Lord, you know, and then I got to preach for about eight minutes. But what they do with Paul is they say at this moment, hey, do any of you want to come and give us a message of encouragement? This is like tossing a softball to Babe Ruth, right? The Apostle Paul. This is like... This is like Steph Curry being open beyond the three-point line. He's, it's going to go in if he, if he takes the shot. This is uh, where all the training comes out. This is like asking a research professor about their area of specialty. <laughs> You're going to hear something from them. This is Paul's area of specialty. He probably had most of the Old Testament memorized. So you want to hear a word of encouragement from the Apostle Paul? He gives them one. And this is the story of Israel from verses 16 to 25. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Charges them to listen. And then he points out that God had done something in choosing out of all the people of the earth one particular group, the Jews, as his chosen people. Verse 17, the God of, of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the, made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out. That's Genesis and Exodus. If you think he's drinking from a fire, you're drinking from a fire hose, he just covered the first two books of the Bible in verse 17. And then it says, and for 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Verse, 9, verse 18 is the book of Numbers. So, so far we've done Genesis, Exodus, kind of skip Leviticus, done Numbers. And then verse 19 is Joshua. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. So the people are now starting to listen to the cadence of this message where he's zooming through 
the Old Testament. And he moves from there to saying that to, he moves to the book of Judges. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua comes to Judges. And the theme of Judges is that this people, and this is verse 20, uh, that the people don't have a king and they do whatever's in the, right in their own eyes. So he says, this all took 450 years, that is, for them to get out of Egypt, etc. And then it says that he gave, in verse 20, he gave them the judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish. So uh, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, that's where we are. He moves from the judges to getting a king, uh, sorry, to getting a prophet who anoints the king. Saul is a terrible king. He looks great. He's that guy. He's the, he's the quarterback on the football team that stands a head and, head and shoulders against, uh, above everybody else. But he's also the quarterback on the football team whose heart is walking away from God. He looks great on the outside. In fact, what it says in the text is that God looks at the heart and man looks at the outside. So who does God call? He calls a shepherd named David. David, who is a man after his own heart. David, who's a poet and a musician and a warrior and a failure. This history is not about the perfect people. It's about the chosen people. This history is not about the ones who did everything right, but the ones who did things wrong and then humbled their hearts before God. It says in verse 22, when he'd removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found David, the man of Jesse, after mine own heart, who will do all my will. And here is the first point that Paul makes, is that Jesus is the Savior who has been foretold. That's really what he's saying. Jesus is the Savior who has been foretold. Look at verse 23. He's, he's speaking to these people who are steeped in the Word of God, in the Law and the Prophets, and he's telling them that their Bible was telling them that Jesus was going to come. That's what he says in verse 23. Of this man's offspring, that is David, God has brought to Israel a Savior. <laughs> so how do, how do the Jews know that there's a Savior? Because he had been promised in Genesis, in Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, in Joshua, in Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, all of them pointed to a Savior. And Paul is now saying, this guy arrived and his name was Jesus. He goes all the way from Egypt to John the Baptist in his first point. That's a big first point. That's drinking from a fire hose. And he says that John the Baptist said, who do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. Somebody is coming after me. The sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. What Paul is saying is that this winding road of the Old Testament that sometimes seems like it is going nowhere has a definite destination and the name of the destination is Jesus who's the Savior and he was foretold. My family got in a terrible, terrible snafu in Wyoming at Lake Jenny about two or three years ago. We call it Moose Gate now in our family. Lake Jenny is a beautiful lake and uh, all of us wanted to see a moose but your cell phones don't work on Lake Jenny. 
So what happened is our youngest, who was about 17, 16 at the time, goes out to see if he can find a moose, and he's gone like 45 minutes. So then we send two of our daughters to find him, and they're gone for 45 minutes. So then I go to find the two daughters and find Josh, and I'm gone for 45 minutes. And we're all just wandering around these woods, and no one can find anyone. And then sometimes we'd circle back to my wife who was remaining at the camp, and her stress level just kept coming up because we would all come back and say, we can't find him. We couldn't find the moose. We couldn't find Josh. We couldn't find my daughters. We couldn't find anyone. But eventually, we had a grand reunion and saw a moose as well. This seems like a meandering story. And if you read the Old Testament, without understanding what the destination is. It seems like it is going nowhere. And Paul is standing in front of these learned people and saying, no, there's a destination which is a savior and it has been foretold in the Old Testament. And I'm just going to ask you to do this. Ask yourself, how are you reading the Bible? Are you reading it as a set of laws? Or are you reading it as something that points to Jesus? And I'll ask you this, do you need a savior? Like a lot of people in our world say, no, I don't need a savior. But if you're honest, you actually do need someone to save you. So the story of Israel is verses 16 to 25. And then the story of Jesus is verses 26 to 37. What Paul does first is he introduces us to a savior who has been foretold. And the second thing he does is he shows us a savior who fulfills scripture. And that's all he does. As he says, that Jesus who was foretold is now this Jesus who fulfills. You can sense the transition in verse 26 where Paul says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, tying back to them being the chosen people, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Now, this is massive because the Savior is intended to bring something, namely salvation. Some of you like to read mysteries. Some of you like the works of J.R. Tolkien. Some of you hate them. Some of you like uh, the, the works of Christopher Nolan, who uh, has amassed more than 36 Oscar nominations and 12 win wins and uh, made more than $5 billion worldwide with movies like Memento, Batman Begins, Inception, Interstellar, Dunkirk, Tenet. Well, what he always does, or he often does, is put inside of the movie some weird way of prophesying something that is to come or embedding some bizarre perspective on time that you can't really figure out and then you realize it's kind of been weaving back and forth together. What Paul points out now is that the Jews who killed Jesus were fulfilling the prophecy without knowing it or believing it. Think of that. That they're almost walking into this script that they've studied all their lives, and yet they don't realize they're fulfilling it even as they deal. That's what verse 27 says. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Jesus nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled the scriptures by condemning him. 
That is a scary statement. It's saying that people can fulfill something without even understanding that they fulfill it. And though they found him not, not sorry, though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Verse 28, he's not guilty. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the forefathers, this he has fulfilled to us. There's the key word in this section, fulfillment to us by raising up Jesus. And then if we didn't have enough of a water fountain before or a fire hose before, he gives us three texts right after one another. All all saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of what was promised. The first one is Psalm 2, verse 7. You see it in your text there if you have your eye uh, on the text where God says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. God identifies Jesus as the begotten son. And then he speaks of his resurrection. As for the fact that he's raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. And he quotes Isaiah 55, verse 3, and then he quotes Psalm 16, verse 10. Therefore he has said in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. What he's doing is he's saying, look, you guys thought that was spoken of David, but it was actually spoken of David's son, Jesus, and Jesus is the one who fulfilled it. That's what he says in verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. This is, so far I've only said two things. One is that Jesus was foretold in the scriptures. And then two, Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. I want you to imagine for a second that you're doing a puzzle with me. And every time we begin putting puzzle pieces on the left side of the puzzle, I let you play the game. But whenever you put any puzzle pieces on the right side of the puzzle, I make you put them back in the box. We would be left with just half of a puzzle. And I say that because that's how many of us read the scriptures. The scriptures form a whole of prophecy and fulfillment. And when you look at the thing as a whole, you see that the Old Testament is saying a Savior is coming and the New Testament is saying a Savior has come. One is foretelling and the other is fulfilling. And the last thing I want to show you here is not just the story of Israel and the story of Jesus, but really the crux of both of those stories and the climax of both of those stories is forgiveness and freedom. Why was Jesus prophesied for all of those generations why was Jesus crucified and then raised from the dead it's a simple truth and it's saying this in verse 38 let it be known to you therefore brothers that through this man what is given forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You see, for those devout Jews who were keeping all of the mitzvot, about 540 different laws, those of you who were raised in a highly religious background, 
And one of works will remember the way the law feels like a burden upon yourself. And Paul is looking at these highly religious people and saying, you can be set free. He's looking at these highly anxious people and saying, you can be forgiven. Not because of your own strength, not because of what you have done, not because of how you adhere to the law. Some of you have gotten so weary of your own failure. Some of you have gotten weary of your own weakness. But what the text here says is that the Savior is foretold, that the Savior fulfills, and that the Savior also forgives. That's the simplicity of the gospel message. Verse 40 says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. This is from Habakkuk chapter 4, verse 5. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your day, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Remember in high school, the group of guys that I was tempted to hang out with who were sort of the scoffers, used to cross their arms, and they were the coolest guys. They were the ones who picked on those who were weaker. And Paul is saying that is the temptation when you hear the message of weakness of Jesus. To go, yeah, right. But even that was prophesied. That some will scoff and some will receive. The message is this. Jesus forgives sin and Jesus sets free. Here's what I want to ask you to do just to think on, about your life for a moment. Are there things that you need to be set free from? Are there places where Christ needs to set you free? Standards that you impose upon yourself. Ways that you're captured either by sin or by the law. And are there things that you need to be forgiven of? So when I ask you to ask Jesus to set you free. And ask Jesus to forgive you. And then also to celebrate that he's done it on the cross. That he's taken you. His precious Lord has taken you by the hand to lead you home and to help you live a new life in freedom and forgiveness. There's more to say about the passage. Some begged for them to come back. Some were filled with jealousy. Some were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. But let me just close with a story. I want you to imagine that you uh, grew up in the country, not in the city, in the country, where it's very dangerous at night because it's so dark. And you lived next to a crotchety old man who had a very large estate, very wealthy. Think like Jeff Bezos wealthy or Bill Gates wealthy. And this crotchety old man had two children, and towards the end of his life, as he was on his deathbed, he called his two children to himself and said to his two children, to his older daughter, said, I want to give you all of my estate. And this one, having been trained in an elite research university, said no. This one who had gained her own wealth on Wall Street said, no, I work for what I get. So then he turns to the younger brother and says to the younger brother, all that I have, my entire estate is yours. And the younger brother says, no. Too much bitterness, 
too many hurts, too much anger. I'll never take anything from you. So the crotchety old father on his deathbed tells his assistants, go next door and finds you. (laughs) Brings you in and says, I know I've never hardly spoken to you, but I want you to have all that I have. And in your amazement, you say, what about your older daughter? The father says, she doesn't want it. And then the crotchety old father says, neither does the son. But what I have, I give to you. All that I have. The message of the gospel says that everything that Christ inherited from the father is given to us. The Jews didn't believe at that moment. So Paul says, okay, we're going to shake the dust off our feet and go to the Gentiles, the nations. Perhaps they will believe. And then the text said, to as many as had been promised eternal life, believed. Don't scoff at the one who fulfills the scriptures. Don't scoff at the one who is foretold. Don't scoff at the one who offers freedom and forgiveness. It's free. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we can't imagine how you could choose us. We understand you chose the Israelites, but why you would choose those who were not of the promise, those who didn't have the law, But we receive this word today, Lord, and I pray for the men and women who are listening now, the men and women who are seated here and those who are listening via technology, that they would know the freedom from the law and freedom from sin and would know also the forgiveness that comes from you through the blood of Jesus who was raised from the dead. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.